Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each week, we interview a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet. Hello, everyone. I'm speaking today with Karen Sato, who is the Frederick C. Hickson Professor of Geography and Urbanization Science at Yale University's School of the Environment. An urban and land change scientist, she is one of the world's leading experts on contemporary urbanization and global change. Very excited about talking to her today. Her research focus is how urbanization will affect the planet. She has conducted this research in China for 20 years and in India for more than 10. And her research has generated insights on the links between urbanization and land use, food systems, biodiversity, and climate change. She co-leads the Urban Mitigation Chapter for the IPCC Sixth Assessment Report and co-led the same chapter for the IPCC Fifth Assessment Report. She was co-editor-in-chief of the journal Global Environmental Change for the last six years. She has many honors. Two or three of them are she is an elected member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So, Karen, thank you for joining me today, and I'm just going to launch right into it. Thanks for inviting me. It's nice to be on your podcast. What drove you to pursue the career you have now? I think maybe the highlights that are important in the context of my career I'm an immigrant. I was born in Hong Kong, and uh, we immigrated to the U.S. when I was about five and a half. I can't remember exactly how old I was, but at some point we went back to Hong Kong to visit my relatives. I was maybe probably I'd say like 10 or something like that. We went back to visit my relatives and we took the train from Hong Kong to China. So back then, way back when, Hong Kong had a very distinct identity. I mean, we were clearly British Hong Kong. We were riding the train into communist China. And Hong Kong is bustling. It's a global metropolis. It's filled with economic activity and life. And you take the train out of Hong Kong and very quickly you see the scene shifting from city to rice paddies and people were still wearing Mao suits back then. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was incredibly poor. And this struck me so much that, I mean, to go from rich Hong Kong to poor China countryside really struck me. So that's one thing that I think has had a big impact is just seeing this transition. And clearly this big change in the landscape was because of policies and government, you know, I didn't, know that at the time as a child, but it definitely made a big impact on me. I went to grad school with the original intention of pursuing a career as a foreign service officer. And I went to grad school and two classes transformed my life. One is I took an economics class, an economics of natural resource use, and I took a remote sensing class. And I saw Earth from space for the first time in 1992. And I remember downloading from the NASA website an image of Hong Kong, and I could see the border between Hong Kong and China. It was like a, you know, someone had drawn a line. And I thought, I know why that is. This is because of government, governance, economic policies. 
Those are big events in my life that have shaped my career. But I've always been interested in humans and societies and always been interested in the environment. And I, ultimately, I'm a, I'm a data nerd. So that kind of wraps everything together. I can see the data nerd element loud and clear in the several papers that you were kind enough to send me. That's a good segue to question, question two. How can politicians engage with urban science and scientists? City is comprised of many component parts, transport system, the buildings, the people, the vegetation, but it also operates as a, a single system. And so the urban science framework is a powerful tool, conceptual tool, as well as an analytical tool to understand how the urban system works. And so it brings together a number of allied traditional urban fields like urban planning and geography and engineering and, and design and energy studies. These are things that we normally think about studying the city in its component parts. Yeah. And the urban manager or the mayor may have operations to deal with the buildings and transport and urban energy and maybe street trees. But you need a comprehensive urban system science to understand how the entire system operates. I have a really concrete example that might help. I mean, there are a lot of cities now that are trying to transition their city into a low carbon city or a more sustainable city. How do you know what strategies are the most effective to lower your carbon footprint? Mm-hmm. We know that there's the jurisdiction within the city. You know, cities can make decisions that are purely based on their territory, but cities import food. We, as urban residents, we consume products that are produced elsewhere. And so there's a science to understand the, the supply chains and the material and energy that's embodied in these products. Mm-hmm. And so the science would help the manager or the mayor understand you know, how does a policy or a strategy to lower your carbon footprint here, how would that actually reduce the carbon footprint as a system? Mm-hmm. So that's, a, I think, a concrete example of where science, urban science, could help urban decision makers. I'm seeing so much interest in cities and local governance from so many different perspectives. It's partly the climate and environment, but it's also about well-being. And anyway, so there's a lot that could be done at the local level where we expect our local decision makers to respond to our local and regional needs. Um, There are a lot of communities and people who want to make a difference in their local community. Polar bears are iconic and important, but at the same time, there's a real interest in improving their local communities. And so it's cities and local decision-making and local efforts become the gateway to larger issues, whether it's about pandemics or wildfires and disasters or issues of justice. Can you tell us a bit about your research on the urban heat island effect? Well, it might be useful to just quickly describe what the urban heat island is, H-I. It is a, a phenomenon where urban areas are much warmer, significantly warmer than the surrounding 
landscapes. And this phenomenon is most pronounced in the evenings. Okay, so the evenings are much warmer. But even during the day, the temperatures in urban areas are elevated compared to surrounding areas. I mean, one reason for this is the materials that are in cities. It's the impervious surface, it's the tarmac and concrete, it's our stucco houses. These trap heat. And so during the day, they trap heat. And at night, they slowly release the heat that they trap. The other reason why we have the uh, urban heat island effect is that cities use energy. So there's human sources of heat. You think of air conditioners or one of the biggest sources is cars. Right. Uh, so, you know, they generate a lot of heat. So these two are some of the main factors. It's the built environment itself. And then it's also human sources of heat. We developed the first ever spatially explicit forecast of urban land going out to 2050. What we did was we took the, the UN forecast, but then we took other data like transportation networks and where existing urban areas are, density, economic activity. And then we forecasted scenarios of urban land expansion. And what we found is that between 2015 and 2050, we're expecting to see about 1.3 million square kilometers of new urban land. It basically translates to or is equivalent to building not just Manhattan, but the whole of New York City every eight days for the next 35 years. So that's oh. significant. It's happening now. I mean, this is not something that's happening in the future. It is already happening now. So th this paper forecasts urban areas, and then very importantly, with regard to the urban heat island, we look at how urban expansion will affect the urban heat island. And there, the principal finding of that analysis is that we're expected to see an increase in temperatures on average of half degrees Celsius, but in some places up to three degrees Celsius. Some of the easiest ways to adapt to the elevated temperatures is planting trees. That's also another way to mitigate the urban heat island. And so what we're going to see with the urban heat island is these local climate effects are actually going to exacerbate and compound the global effects of greenhouse gas emissions. So you've got climate change and then you've got locally induced changes in climate. Our study looked at only urban heat, but there's studies that also show that there are urban effects on precipitation and changes in rainfall patterns as well. What is carbon lock-in? Carbon lock-in, in a nutshell, is a type of path dependency. It occurs when there are very large capital costs. Another aspect of carbon lock-in is that the thing that you've invested in has a very long lifespan. And then really important is that there are mutually reinforcing relationships between the thing that you've invested in and then society in terms of our behavior and then also institutions. The research that we've done breaks this carbon lock-in into these three different components. There's the infrastructure part. Right. There's an institutions or a governance component that that reinforces the infrastructure. And then there's a behavior part of it. So the classic example of carbon lock-in is coal-fired power plants. 
They last 40 to 50 years. They cost a lot of money. They lock us into carbon fossil fuel-based futures. You mentioned initial conditions. I mean, this is really, really, really important in in the context of uh, cities. The initial design of cities sets in motion, believe it or not, what you buy to eat, (laughs) how frequently you shop for food. So, you know, there's this whole domino effect that is set in place by these initial conditions. And then it's very difficult to break out of them because we have zoning, you know, we have institutions that reinforce the car-centric urban design. And then we get used to always driving, regardless of whether you know, we need to drive. How can we bring together the social and environmental dimensions of sustainability? Well, I think that these pathways are already intertwined. I think that if we look at the history of the environmental movement, it was very much about the environment for the environment. It was environment out here and humans out here, nature and humans. That's uh, crystallized in the way we hit parks have originally been conceptualized as, you know, keep nature pristine and keep humans out of it. And I think where the environmental and sustainability literature has gone and continues to go is recognizing that the environment and environmental conditions are supremely important for human well-being. And it's not just the environment for the sake of the environment, but for protection of, let's say, ecosystem services for humankind. There's a growing literature that shows that the design of our cities has a clear link to human health. Cities that are designed around the car, are uh, people are much less mobile. They're heart disease and, and other uh, non-communicable yes, diseases increase, right? So the natural environment, the built environment, and our, our well-being are clearly all intertwined. Karen, you know, I, I could go on for a while. You've been amazingly kind with me. You're a super busy person. I think everything you have said will be hugely interesting to my audience. And I, I want to wish you the best. And, and I, I know I'll talk to you again. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Please email us at climate at amasia.vc with any suggestions or ideas. And visit inourhands.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information.